This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. Hello, I'm James Tu, Senior Director of Content and Communications at Trine University, and I want to welcome you to Faculty Focus. This podcast features interviews with Trine University faculty members about their current research and their insights on issues impacting us all today. My guest today is Brandon Podgorski, Assistant Professor of Sports Management in Trine's Kettner School of Business and Director of the University's Center for Sports Studies. We're going to talk about the center and about the sports industry. Thank you, Brandon, for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, James. Well, first off, uh, for those who may not be aware of Trine Center for Sports Studies, describe uh, for me and for our listeners, obviously, what the center is and what it does. I'll give you the official definition, and then I'll give you a little bit of background about what we do. But the Center for Sports Studies, it's a multidisciplinary teaching and experimental learning collaborative focusing on the study of sport and the international sport industry. So what I've been charged with as the director of the Center for Sports Studies is to make trying a thought leader when it comes to sport. And, and it makes sense, I think. Uh, we've got a, a really solid sport management program. We've got sport and rec. We've got some amazing uh, professionals and individuals in exercise science, um, health and PE. I mean, and we've got all these other minors that kind of feed into that, not to mention everybody in our athletic department. So we've got a lot of professionals on campus that can contribute to the study of sports. So Right now, we're doing a few things on campus. We've, we've got a podcast that, that airs um, every other week during the semesters and about uh, once or, or twice a month in the summer. We started a research blog. So faculty and staff and students, it's not necessarily research as far as like published journal peer review types of things, but kind of maybe literature reviews is the best way I could describe it, where they can start to showcase some of their expertise. Students can actually get some experience researching a particular topic and having that, you know, published in a certain, in a certain sense, which is really exciting for them. Um, we host a featured speaker once a year. So a couple of years ago, it was Tim Ballman with the Fort Wayne Mad Ants, who's the president of the Fort Wayne Mad Ants this last year. It was Dr. Robert Philippi, who's the uh, Associate Commissioner of Conference USA. Uh, we've got one coming up this year that, that I'm still working on, but another big name. And then we've got some other things that we want to start to do as far as collaborating between different units on campus. So my thought and director in, in making trying a, a thought leader in sport is bringing together our, our faculty and our staff, some of the experience and expertise that they have, because I would put our faculty and staff against anybody, but that's me and being biased, and really starting to pump out more information about all the amazing things that we're doing here and trying, at least in the environment of sport. Now, you mentioned, you know, having students and faculty members as well who contribute to this research blog. What are some topics that have been covered that might be interesting to people who are listening? Yeah, so my sports psychology class, we made that one of their assignments, is find a topic of sports psychology and write about it on the blog, do some research and write about it on the blog. So I think the three that we have up right now, we've got um, basically mental health and team sport, I think specifically coming back from injury. And there's a, a huge mind-body connection. There's a lot of research that goes into that as well. And a lot of research has been published about that. You know, it's not only trying to get you right physically, but also just kind of the mental process that goes in with that. Because so many athletes, especially, you know, we're on a college ca campus, student athletes, their self-identity is wrapped up in their sport. 
So I can't, I'm not a basketball player anymore. I can't play. Um, how do I overcome that? So we had one student tackle that. Um, we had one student who looked specifically at, at wrestling and how wrestling is kind of a, a unique sport as compared to others in college. Uh, he looked at, at things like cutting weight and healthy diets and, and so on and so forth. And then um, we've had some other students look at coaching and what are some effective coaching maneuvers. You know, there's a big um, positive reinforcement um, kind of uh, kind of camp right now with coaching. And is that the way to go? Or do we need to be a little bit tougher? Does it matter um, on the age of the athlete? So those are some of the things that students have been researching. Okay. And where, if somebody was interested in tracking this down, where, where would they find it? I think the link is way too long for me to memorize and try to uh, put out here. But if they go to trine.edu, click on academics, click on centers, you'll see the Trine Center for Sports Studies. And, and it's great because it's a one-stop shop right there. You can see the blog, you can see podcasts, and you can see all our social media on there as well. When most people think of sports, they think of it as an avenue for entertainment. You know, I'm going to go home and watch the Cubs or something like that rather than you know, something scholarly. Uh, what kind of scholarship is out there related to sports? I am going to go home and watch the Cubs tonight. Actually, funny you say that. But, you know, the, we, we think about sports and sometimes we kind of get this narrow focus on, well, it's professional sports and it's football, baseball, and basketball. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, if you just do a, a quick Google search, you're going to see there's over two dozen journals just dedicated to sport. And there's so many different things that you can look at. Um, you know, if, if you want to look um, at, at kind of the, the professional side, there's that. There's a lot of research on the, on the college athletics, um, especially I think we're going to probably see a lot more now with um, name, image, and likeness. It just came out. Tons and tons and tons of research in exercise science. So regarding biomechanics, regarding sports psychology, regarding injuries, a lot on that side there. And then looking at professional sports, especially from um, a business side or, or a revenue side, there's a lot of uh, research coming out there. So as an example, um, right now I'm doing a study right now on the impact of student athletes at Division three institutions, just at Division three institutions um, specifically. And you know, there, there's some schools that use athletics for as a driver for enrollment. Is that good? Is that bad? Um, you know, what I'm starting to find is, as I dig into the numbers and, and look at the expenses per student, per student athlete and the revenue that they bring in, well, most student athletes become a, a net positive, net positive revenue for the school. So, you know, we, we're thinking right right now with, with coronavirus, um, with increased competition in, in online programs, the traditional college-age uh, population is starting to decrease a little bit. Well, there's over 4,000 colleges and universities in this country, so we've got to start to get these students from somewhere. You know, my argument, and as I look into the data right now, it's that adding athletics or, or expanding your athletics, adding more sport, might be a great way to hedge against some of those issues that we're seeing right now. Now, I still got a ways to go before we get to the point where we may publish this, but just kind of looking at data like that and actually, um, you know, putting pen to paper and letting others kind of critique that, those are some of the things that we see in sport. And what are the, some of the main themes you see as you kind of look at this body of sports research? Right now, COVID's a really big theme with good reason for that, you know. How do we come back from that? Uh, more so, what have kind of been the, the impacts of COVID? And, 
you know, we, we still don't know. I like to look things from the business aspect. We don't know necessarily financially how it's going to impact for a long, a long amount of time. I mean, the, I think the estimate was about $11 billion was lost in professional sport because of COVID. So how's that going to impact things as far as salary caps going forward? How's that going to impact things with, with the staff and, and bringing more people in, fans? You know, we, we've got some COVID cases starting to tick up a, a little bit, maybe because of, of the Delta variant. Does that change capacity issues? So, so those are the things that's being looked at right now. Uh, other things that are uh, really popular in the literature, diversity, equity, um, uh, inclusion, DEI, that's been really popular. Um, and a lot of that that I found is kind of centered in, in college sport, specifically some of the experiences between like um, black male athletes, black female athletes. There's a lot of research in that going on right now. Um, I think we'll start to see more in college sport. It's, it's really interesting. College sport is kind of a fascinating thing um, with, with professionals in this area to, to look at. I think we're going to see a ton more, even not just in kind of traditional literature, but also law reviews um, as far as name, image, and likeness goes. Um, it's it's going to be the Wild West for a little while. I don't know how the NCAA is going to control this. Um, you know, right now it's looking like the starting quarterback at, at Alabama, who hasn't even started a game yet, um, may already be making close to a million dollars in, in endorsements. So uh, I think we're going to start to see some more research on that. And then exercise science. So, you know, we talk about physiology, biomechanics, all these different things. That area of study in sport is always, um, always evolving. So we're finding new ways to train and the different energy systems in the body and, um, you know, rest and recovery. That one's really fascinating. And in a former life when I was doing strength conditioning coach, uh, coaching, I always really enjoyed kind of reading a lot of those journals because there's always, there, there's no one way to skin a cat in that type of um, training or, or those types of programs. So that one was always really in, enjoyable to read and, and we're always seeing new stuff come out there. And I know you mentioned uh, sports psychology a little earlier too. And, you know, I don't know from an academic standpoint, but I know, you know, popular discussion of sport, there's things about, you know, even at the, you know, the childhood level, you know, participation trophies are kind of their own meme or whatever. Is there research into those sort of things as well, even, you know, sports at the youth level and, you know, psychology of professional sports? Huge in the in the youth level, and it's really taken off here in the past 20, 30 years, and, and it's one of the avenues, one of the things I really like to, to investigate. I got my master's in recreation and sports science and graduated in 2010, and a lot of our a lot of our research had to do with coaching education. You know, how do we kind of coach the coaches or kind of like that coaching pedagogy? And you know, I, I won't go into to all of it, but, you know, regarding kind of participation trophies, that's almost kind of a, a side thing. It, it's popular for people to kind of argue about kind of in popular culture. But really what we're looking at in the research, especially with youth sport development, is what's a better way to develop youth in, in, in the context of sport. So, um, you know, from zero to six, we're working on the ABCs, the agility, balance, coordination, speed. And then from there, we do some more sports-specific skills. And then from there, a little bit more competition. And it's kind of taking your traditional modes of training and, and turning them on their head. I think there's a thought that, you know, we got to get kids in competition really quick. And we got to kind of harden them. And, and they got to get used to winning and losing. And that'll come. I mean, eventually kids will get into that. But, I mean, if we don't start off with a foundation and a base and teaching them, you know, the ABCs and how to actually move. i got a two-year-old right now. And... 
you know, he's been walking for, I don't know, about a year or something, but it's still like a newborn baby giraffe. You know, he can't walk down the sidewalk, it feels like, without, without falling. And I see that with um, like five and six-year-olds at soccer games. I mean, they're just tripping over themselves and, and they don't know where to go and they're just having fun waving at mom and dad in the stands. So to think that we can take this group and, and put them in these highly competitive environments and it's not going to um, affect them in a, in a negative way, it's, it's just kind of crazy thinking about 70% of kids stop playing sport by the age of 13. So, you know, there's so many awesome things that come along with sport. You know, only 5% of high school athletes are going to go on to play college athletics. And only about 1%, maybe 1.5% of those are actually going to get a scholarship of any type. So 95% of us who played sport, we're going to go on and do something else. Well, you know, there's great things to learn about sport and, and teamwork and dedication, time management, you know, self-sacrifice. When I look at sport, that's what I hope to get through to, to my child. It's what I talk about in our classes. You know, what are the, in my classes, what are all these other great things that come along with sport that help us as leaders as we go on in other jobs? Because, you know, the chances of, you know, any of my students here at Trine, and this isn't me trying to, to dog them in any way, but the chances of them going pro and, and making big money as a pro athlete, it's just extraordinarily small, extraordinarily rare. So sports are great. And what can we do to, to make it better as people as, as we go forward? You mentioned the blog. Um, what are some other academic projects we have going on here at Trine related to the sports industry? So we do a few in, in the sport management program. We got the sport management capstone and, and we've changed that from kind of just a research paper to more of like a project-based um, class. And so in the fall, we partner with the Fort Wayne Mad Ants and we do a ticket sales class. So I, I'm excited. This will be my biggest class this semester that I've had. So I'm going to have 12 students this fall who are basically act as group ticket sales agents for the Mad Ants. And it's a competition as well. So whoever sells the most tickets at the end of the semester, they're going to get a guaranteed interview with the Mad Ants or Pacers at the end of the semester or, or, or when they graduate. So it's a great carrot to kind of dangle in front of them. And the, the last two students have won. They just, they did amazing. And one's with the Indianapolis Indians right now in sales. One's with just got promoted with the Detroit Pistons. So, you know, I'm not saying necessarily saying it's a springboard to, to success, but it certainly gives them a, a foundation to work with because at some point you, you, you're going to sell it. You know, whether you're actually selling a product or selling yourself in an interview, you're going to sell. So they actually learn some cool skills there. And then in the spring, um, we run the KSB golf outing. So we register teams, secure all the sponsorships. We do all the marketing. We do all the operations. Last year, I think we brought in uh, $11,000, which was a record for us. We had over 30 teams and tons of sponsors. So again, it gets them some actual practical experience. And, and that's what working in sports, in the traditional way that we think about, that's what it takes. you you got to have some experience. You, you've got to network. you got to be willing to work hard. All those things go into working in sport. And then just um, before, uh, before the summer, I think this is about maybe late March, early April, on the Center for Sports Studies podcast, we had Professor uh, Lauren Coxis uh, from uh, Exercise Science, and she's doing a capstone with her class where they were looking at the effects of um, COVID-19 on lung capacity, and they were actually doing a study and had faculty and staff, and I think some students from all over campus coming in and um, um, doing an exercise where they were able to kind of look at the um, their, their lung pressure or, or how they exhale and were able to, to, um, to measure that, and, and I know I'm kind of 
I'm butchering that. She could come in and explain it a lot more elegantly than I could. Um, but we've got stuff like that coming on uh, all over the campus. We had one of our health and PE instructors was a, um, gave some, he's been coaching baseball for a long time, high school baseball for a long time. And he contributed to the blog and, and just gave, talked about some of those coaching things that I was talking about earlier with kids. So, you know, we've got some great faculty and staff that are doing some really great things here on campus. And we want to do what we can, at least the Center for Sports Studies, to, to help to showcase that. From your standpoint, how is the role of athletics in the life and culture of the United States changing? As I look at it, I think it's generational to a certain respect, to a certain respect with, with athletics and culture. Me growing up, so I, I'm in my 40s, and, and me growing up, you know, it's baseball, basketball, and football. And, you know, we, we, we had video games. It started to become a little bit pop, more popular, I think, like in, in the late 80s and as I was growing up in the 90s. You know, we had video games, but I was still outside with my friends. For the, for the most part, we're outside and we're playing and we're, we'll, we'll, we'll find a field and, and we'll play something. I think the biggest change that I've seen culturally is kind of the, the popularity of, of eSports. And, you know, I don't know if I see kids as much anymore just going to somebody's house and playing a pickup game of ball or, you know, like my buddies and I, we, we had this abandoned field or, or this undeveloped field by our house. I mean, we were always out there playing football and baseball. I just don't see that as much anymore. Um, I think technology's had a big part to do with that, good or bad. I mean, everybody's got their opinion. Um, I will say esports. I think it's projected to be the, the second most popular, second most watched sport. We can say that in air quotes. Um, um, second only to football. So people have clung on to that. Marketers see that. Um, networks have seen that. And so I think that's been one of the biggest changes is, is kids kind of actually playing maybe physical sports, going into a little bit more of the esports route. And, and maybe that's a good thing. You know, not everybody, you know, one of the things that play into that statistic I talked about earlier were 70% of 13-year-olds stop playing sports um, or, or 70% of kids stop playing sports by the time of 13. Um, I think you get to that age when you get to high school where cuts start to happen. And you may love playing basketball, but you're just not good enough to play varsity. And that's okay. You know, now all of a sudden we've got this other thing where Anybody can get involved. It doesn't matter what your skill level is, whether you just want to do what you want to do it seriously and maybe come to trying and play collegially, or you just enjoy doing it in your room as a way to kind of pass the time or, you know, something that, you know, keeps you competitive. So I think that's a big thing. Technology is really kind of driving everything in sport. You know, the way that we interact with teams, interact with athletes, we've got so much more access now with technology. Again, there's good and there's bad that comes along with that. It also, I think, has led us to be a little bit more inactive. So, you know, obesity continues to, to rise along with that. Or professional sports, they want those eyeballs, but it's really, really tough when you're competing with all these other things that they never had to compete with in the 80s and 70s and 60s. Really, really tough for them to, to get fans in the stands when, you know, hey, I could just stay home, watch the game, you know, on a Sunday look at my fantasy football, there's no lines to the bathroom, the food's free, um, you know, really tough. So um, it'll be interesting. I think that'll kind of be the, the most innovative thing, or, or we've got a lot of innovative things that I think teams are going to do to try to get fans in the stands or at least get them to watch the games on TV. You mentioned earlier, I think you said, what, an $11 billion impact on professional sports from COVID last year. What were the impacts on the sports industry beyond just the financial from COVID? 
So good and bad. I was just kind of talking about innovation and teams have had to be really innovative in the way that they get fans to engage and even in a way where they were able to recoup a, a little bit of revenue. So if you watch, you know, in professional sports and, and I even saw it kind of clicking through and, and I think it came up on my on my Twitter feed, but even wrestling, WWE wrestling, they have fans like all over the ring or they had fans in the arena um, through video board. And, you know, you could pay a certain amount of money and you would be shown on, on the video board. You know, it wasn't enough to completely offset all their losses or, or completely make up for that revenue they lost in tickets. But getting fans engaged that way in a technological way, I think, was, was really interesting. So I think we'll continue to see more than that, uh, more of that. And I think teams are starting to learn that they've got to do a little bit more with a little bit less, whether that's their staff working from home like I know there's some teams in, in, in a meeting with some uh, with some people on Friday. Um, there's some teams that they don't have a home office anymore. You know, everybody's just kind of working from home now. So developing ways to you know, keep maybe staff away and, and kind of starting to reduce some costs that way. I've, I've seen that. And I think a big impact has been we've learned to live without sport. Now, for me, who's a sport fan and a sport management professor, you know, it hurts my heart a little bit. But, you know, when sport wasn't going on last summer, um, we learned to live without it. So things like, um, you know, just outside activities, like it is almost impossible to buy a bicycle right now. And if you go, go to try, try to buy one, like the, the prices are just kind of through the roof. So I think people have kind of started to shift their leisure time from just kind of sitting down and, and watching games. I mean, we're seeing viewership down for across, almost across the board for all the professional sport. I think people are, are getting outside more or spending more time with family. Again, it's a good and bad thing. I, I think it's it's been maybe bad for the sport industry, but I think people have kind of, once they were home, they kind of realized, you know, it's kind of nice being home and, and having dinner with, with my family and, and spending time with them. So I think Time has shifted a little bit or time management um, has shifted a little bit for people. It'll be interesting to see how that affects sports long term. What are some of the factors that play into the popularity of a sport at a given time? And I mean, kind of thinking through this, I mean, you look at the early 20th century when baseball was king and kind of more recently back in about the, I think in the nineties with NASCAR was huge and now they're struggling to fill the stands what factors make a certain sport popular? You just mentioned two sports right there, like so baseball and, and auto racing. Take a long time to finish. You know, some people consider them boring. Now, I'm a huge baseball fan. I, I see the beauty in a, in a one to zero game. Um, if you were to put, you know, friends, family, wife beside me, they would be ready to leave by the third inning. You know, other sports like that, you know, maybe golf to a certain respect. I think we're in a culture now, it's a little bit more of a microwave culture. Um, you know, we want things quickly and, and we want them now. It's so much easier to, to scroll through Twitter and, and just see, you know, or, or get online and, and see what the recap was instead of sitting down and watching a whole game. So, and not only that, you know, as I was talking about earlier, sport properties are also competing with all these other things and all these other technologies, you know, esports, social media, YouTube, that it seems that's what kids are starting to go a little bit more to now. I think, you know, for older generations, I'm always going to be there for, with baseball. I'm always going to watch. But, you know, I look at, like, I've got some nieces um, who, who are teenagers or, or preteens. And all they want to do now, like, you know, I ask, all right, so what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a YouTube star. <laughs> okay, um, that, that's good. Great for you. 
but I, I just don't know if sports holds that same captive audience that it used to. You know, I, I think there's just so many other types of things that are competing for time. So that's why I think innovation is going to have to be really important in sport, and they're going to have to continue to develop technology and develop ways to access fans and kind of get them hooked and get them into the game. Maybe they might not be able to get them into the arena, but if they can at least get them engaging on social media or, or watching, I think it's kind of been really neat to see how games are streaming on YouTube now or they'll stream on Twitter now, they'll stream on Facebook. That's probably the route they're going to have to go and they're going to have to really heavily rely on, um, on, on sponsorship and ad revenue going forward. I know you mentioned the growth in esports. Are there any other sports that you see as kind of up and coming that might be the next, you know, NASCAR or whatever? You know, basketball and, and football are always going to be there. Um, you know, we, we keep waiting for soccer to kind of be the one that takes over. It just hasn't happened yet. Now, um, Major League Soccer continues to grow and expand, and, and even the minor leagues continue to, to grow, the USL and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I think I keep waiting for that. It just, for whatever reason, it hasn't happened. However, I think some of the younger generations, um, Gen X, millennials, who, who played soccer at a really, really high rate um, a, a, in youth, I think they'll start to continue to, to drive that popularity. So that's the one I think soccer is the one I, I continue to look at. Like eventually that's going to become more popular. You know, esports is only going to continue to grow. Um, that's the one where I see a, a ton of potential. Uh, outside that, you know, maybe some some niche sports. Um, lacrosse, it's really grown from just kind of an East Coast sport to now it's it's really kind of uh, around the United States. Just about every state, in, in a college in every state offers lacrosse to some extent. Um, they've got Major League Lacrosse. So that's one I'm kind of keeping my eye on as well. Um, there's a, there's a new rugby league that started up in the United States. So I think we might find some of those niche sports that, you know, okay, well maybe you weren't good enough to play on varsity basketball or, or baseball teams, but we've got some of these other options over here. I wouldn't be surprised to see one of those pop up and all of a sudden, you know, maybe not be take over the NFL, but have a, have a pretty strong following. A few months ago, I had it, uh, Andy Brown who has an extensive experience in sports broadcasting, on the podcast, and we were talking a little bit about kind of the expectations on pro athletes today. And one that came to mind at the time was like Ty Cobb, who from all accounts was a pretty obnoxious person off the field, and yet that really didn't play into into his celebrity or the fans' reaction to him at the time. Today, that wouldn't happen. So from your perspective, how have the public image of athletes and the expectations put upon pro athletes changed since Ty Cobb's time? I think there's two things that play into it. One, players are so much more accessible now and, and everything they do is, is scrutinized. You know, obviously social media has played into that, but, you know, back in the days when, when Ty Cobb was playing, you would have to get up, read the paper the next morning to find out what happened in the game. Right. Um, now I, I've got it. I mean, I could just bring out my phone. I've got it right here. And everything that players do is just scrutinized at, at such a high level. I mean, you know, I feel like we're getting continuous around the clock coverage of, of Aaron Rodgers and what he's going to do this season. Is he coming back to green Bay or is he going somewhere else? You know, you would have a little bit of, of that, you know, back, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, but not to the extent that it is. So I, I think, you know, they're a lot more accessible. Everything's a little bit more scrutinized. 
And these athletes, you know, it's one thing. The second point is it's one thing for them to get paid from their team. They've got their athletic contract or, or their team contract, but they've got, you know, millions and millions and millions tied up in endorsement deals. In a lot of these endorsement deals as well, they'll have morality clauses in them. So we saw when Tiger Woods went through everything that he went through, um, you know, sponsors started dropping them. And one of those things they have in that contract is morality clause. Now, we, we can differ on, on what we think is, is good or bad, you know, morally speaking. But, you know, these corporations, they don't want to take on a ton of risk with, with endorsers. Um, anytime you have some, like an individual person endorsing your product, there's going to be a little bit of risk that they do something that's going to look bad for your brand. Um, so I, I think, you know, if I'm getting paid more for my endorsement deals than I am for my playing contract, and those endorsement deals are going to stay with me for until I die. I mean, just look at Peyton Manning. He's still on every commercial, it feels like, that you watch. I want to keep that gravy train running. And if that means that, you know, I, I need to be home by, by 10 p.m. And, and tucked in bed and, and being a good boy um, to continue to get $10, $20 million a year, I, I think that's going to be a pretty big factor in, 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 in influence how you act. So um, those would be the two things I think a little bit different. You know, as you were talking about the – constant social media and, and media coverage and everything of these personalities it brought to my, I th- think the movie was called the Truman show. Was it with mm-hmm. Jim Carrey where, mm-hmm. you know, he was living this life that everybody was watching and uh, that picture, you know, what kind of effect does that have on somebody? Again, I, I think they probably mind their P's and Q's a little bit more when, when they're out um, in public. And, and I just wonder how, I don't know. I don't know how I would react to it, but I just wonder how these pro athletes react to it. I wonder if it makes them maybe a little bit more unapproachable or, or a little bit more aloof because it would only take, you know, one person coming up and asking for an autograph and, and somebody says no or, or one of their handlers maybe kind of just um, this makes for, for a bad podcast, but, you know, it kind of pushes somebody away as, as I do that with my hand here. Um, you know, maybe not in a violent way, but just kind of block somebody away. And then all of a sudden, oh, I was assaulted by this guy. You know, so maybe it kind of keeps them home a little bit or keeps them a little bit more private. So we start to think they're a little bit more aloof. You know, I think about a guy like Tom Brady, who, you know, growing up as a Colts fan, I I never really liked. And he was always kind of a quiet guy, endorsed a lot of stuff, but you never saw him kind of out and about. And now that he's getting older in his playing career, he's starting to show his personality a little bit more. And I'm just kind of thinking, man, I actually kind of like this guy. So I, I think, you know, they're probably a little bit more protective of their image because, again, they've got a lot on the line, too. And, you know, one just one slip up and, you know, they're, they're going to lose out on, on a lot of future money. After a year delay because of COVID, the Tokyo Olympics are beginning next week as we're talking now, depending on when the podcast airs, they may already be underway. Of course, all of us here at Trine University will be cheering for the U.S. men's rugby sevens team with our alum Joe Schrader on it. What role do the Olympics play in national pride and identity? Well, nationalism, you know, I think it's that term's had some negative connotations lately in the political sphere. But, you know, when we're talking about it from the competition aspect and in the Olympics and world competition, uh, it's exciting. Now, I, I love the Olympics. I always have loved the Olympics. Maybe this year, be, because of COVID and fans won't be allowed, I feel like it's been tempered a little bit. And, and you know, we, we've seen as many negative articles as we have, have positive. 
you know, we had the 100-meter the female sprinter who, who won't be able to compete because she failed a drug test. So I feel like there, and, and there's always a, a little bit of a cloud in the, over the Olympics this year. I feel it's been a little bit more. Um, but it's also this great way where, you know, the cool things about sports is it's a great uniter. Um, I, I think that's been challenged the past few years. I think a lot of the political environment has kind of gotten infused in sport. But, it, you know, sport's always been that way to, to unite countries and unite people, unite communities. And that's what's special about the Olympics. It's this sense of, of nationalism and pride in a positive way where you're cheering on your fellow countrymen as they go and compete against the best in the world. And, you know, I think for the United States specifically – it's important to us or, or we get excited because we're one of the best in the world. We usually win the most medals and we're right up there with winning the most gold medals. Um, we're a competitive country and, you know, we really, really enjoy a winner and, and we celebrate a winner. Um, and then for some other countries, you know, it's just remarkable for them to have somebody there. You know, they're, they're part of something that's worldwide, that's international. People hear Angola and they think of, you know, the, the most beautiful town here in Northeast Indiana. Well, it's an actual country, right? And you may have never known that unless you actually watch the Olympics. So um, it, it's a great way to showcase the world and, and all the, the positives that go along with it. You talked a little bit earlier about the, the uh, name, image, and likeness guidance, and that's been a lot of big news. How do you think the role overall of athletics in higher education is evolving? I think it's going to change dramatically. And um, these are conversations that's been going on for years and years and years now. So um, I, I was an athletic director, albeit at, at a small school, but um, I remember going down to, to NACTA in 2014, which is basically the convention for, for all athletic directors, Division One through, through JUCO. Everybody goes there. And I remember they were having conversations with some of the Power Five conferences or the autonomous conferences, um, your, your Big Tens, ACC, SEC, and, and so on and so forth, about them possibly splitting off, you know, whether they make their own division or they just get out of the NCAA completely. You know, there's a lot of things that play into that. But, but the NIL, I don't know if it's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back here, um, but I think we're getting closer to that being a reality. Um, because like I was talking about earlier, the, the starting quarterback for Alabama hasn't started a game yet, but he's going to be the starter this year. Uh, Nick Saban just said he's getting close to a million dollars in endorsement deals. Okay, well, if you've got businesses or companies lined up to, to bring a recruit to Alabama and, and pay him a million dollars as a freshman, you know, if you're a mid-major, how do you compete? You know, the, the starting quarterback at, at, at Alabama is getting all this money. You know, if I'm a, a UAB down there or, or, or a MAC team, Ohio University of Ball State, you know, I'm not going to be able to compete even possibly with, with Purdue's or Indiana's who alumni have deep pockets and they're in the Big Ten. Um, so I think the rich are going to continue to get richer. Um, I think it's going to – there's going to be struggles with smaller colleges, especially small D1 colleges. So I don't know if we're going to come to a breaking point here within the next year or two, but I think we're getting close. And I think we're, we're going to see those power five schools, those big major schools either break off completely or they're going to start their own division. And I actually wouldn't be shocked if division three and NAIA start to pick up some former division one schools. It's already, it's already happening. I think the university of new Orleans 
went D3. Um, there's a school, um, I think Hartford, maybe out, out in Connecticut, I, I believe that's it. I think they're going to go D3. Now their student athletes and coaches are fighting it tooth and nail right now. Um, but, you know, there's no athletic scholarships in, in D3. If you're going NAIA, you don't have to give full scholarships. So, you know, as these opportunities for these mid-majors and lower-major um, D1 schools, it's their opportunities to bring in revenues. They start to decrease, um, and they're really losing a lot of the recruiting wars. You know, a, a place like Butler, which is certainly a mid-major, they can get some really good basketball players. I just don't know how they might be able to compete now with, with your Indiana's, Notre Dame's, Purdue. They may need to make that tough decision. Hey, we're, we're bleeding money here. We may need to think about reclassifying. So um, it's going to be fascinating. And with the NIL, it's, it's going to be the, the wild, wild west. And from a former coaching standpoint, I'm rambling here a little bit, but from a former coaching standpoint, I think it's going to be really interesting how it affects a locker room. You know, if, if I'm the, the backup quarterback and the guy right next to me in the locker next to me, the starter, he's getting a million dollars in endorsement deals and I can't get anything, you know, does that cause rifts? Um, do players all of a sudden, you know, do coaches lose a little bit of that control that they have on players? So it's going to be wild. I'm, I'm glad I'm on the professor side now and not having to deal with it. And, and I get to watch from the, from the outside in. What kind of impact does it have? I mean, there's, there's always, I think, kind of been this ideal of the non-professional college student athlete with this professionalism kind of bleeding in. What impact does that have? You know, as I think about it from the faculty side, especially if these these athletes will just go with with the high um, high major or yeah high majors in D one. If they think they're already going pro, it's going to be really tough to get them engaged. I think in the classroom and, and get them doing what they need to do. Um, now they still have to pass. You know, there's a sliding scale, but, you know, 12 credit hours a semester at a, at a 2.0, we'll just say as a minimum. They're still going to have to do that to, to stay eligible. You know, I, I just go back to when I was 18 years old, and if I was making a quarter of a million or even $100,000 a year, you know, playing my sport, I would have been awful. You know, now hopefully co- that's why we've got coaches as, as guardrails to kind of keep them focused. I don't disagree with the rule because to me there's just something – un-American about not being able for me to sell my name or, or my image. I didn't like that. At the same point, I think there's going to be some unintended consequences where, um, you know, we're giving 18, 19, 20-year-olds um, these huge sums of money here really quick. Are coaches equipped to, to handle this and all the changes in, in, in negativity that goes along with that? So I actually think it's going to kind of open up a spot for sport management students, uh, marketing students who understand branding and understand marketing to actually come in and, and schools have already started hiring these people and, and get them to understand, okay, well, here's how you actually set up um, your, your branding strategy here, you know, and, and for finance professionals to come in and, and explain, all right, well, here's what we've got to do with this money because, you know, not all of you may go pro, but boy, you're going to be set up for when you graduate man, you're going to be in a great spot here. So it's going to set up some jobs. I just um, worry about some of those unintended consequences that come along with giving 18 to 22-year-olds massive, massive sums of money. Well, and to a certain extent, some of that's happened in the pro realm where, you know, in the NBA, it comes to mind in particular where you've got some guys who were drafted out of high school. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's no shortage of, of stories for even professional athletes who go broke, you know, a couple of years after after playing. So 
you know, it, it's a it's a great opportunity for student athletes, and um, I, I've come around to the point now where, you know, I may not necessarily be waving the flag for it, but I understand it, and, and it, it's fine, and, and, it, and it's great um, to have these opportunities. But there's always unintended consequences to to any action or, or any policy that takes place. And I would just want to make sure if I was an athletic director or, or, or if I was a coach, you know, what are we doing to help set these student athletes up for, for success? You know, we don't want this to, to ruin them. We want this to help them. And, and what can we do to, to guide them? And, and, and I think that's going to be the challenge going forward. Now, you mentioned, too, that maybe the, the really big schools could break off. Would they be almost like their own professional league and then everybody else is still kind of the amateurs? Yeah, they, they could do that. You know, if they still wanted to stay under the NCAA banner as far as, you know, certain types of um, eligibility rules, they could do that and say, okay, we're going to be Division One, and then we'll have Divisions two, three, four, or whatever they want to do. Or if they just want to say, you know, hey, we're done being under the NCAA. Now, there's, gonna, there's a lot of moving parts to that, and college presidents are going to have to get on board, and board of directors are going to get on board. I mean, it's, it's not just, you know, we're not going to snap our fingers, but could that happen? I mean, is there a really good, you know, financial model where they can come back and say, hey, listen, you know, this is how it's going to benefit us, at least financially, and this is how it's going to benefit us marketing-wise and everything, um, where they just create their own their own governing body? Yeah, that could happen. Um, but I, I think, if anything, they would probably just have their own division, and that way they're able to keep a lot more of their revenue instead of having to share it with, you know, kind of the mid and, and low majors. Well, once again, I'd like to thank Brandon Podgorski for joining me today for Faculty Focus. Be sure to check back for new episodes as Trine faculty members talk about their research interests and the issues of the day. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.